welcome to Between the Rows. I'm Ed White, your host this week. Today we're going to hear about how there's at least one section of environmentalists who appreciate the work cattle do in preserving grasslands and the sustainability of rural areas. Watershed organizations and the hundreds of farmers and others who contribute their time and efforts to preserving their local land, water and biodiversity know and understand the value of having grazing animals in the environment. But does that understanding ever get out into the public? For farmers, how does running a farm, managing the soil and living within a sprawling watershed fit together? We'll hear about that too. And we're going to hear about how cattle living on the land learn what to eat and what not to eat. It's not as simple as just eating anything green. But first, a word from our sponsor. Save money, make money with AGI Nico dryers. AGI Nico mixed flow screenless dryers provide one to two pounds heavier test weight per bushel and require less maintenance than screen dryers. Stainless steel fuel trains mean no rust or corrosion to worry about. AGI Nico dryer manager puts remote management and monitoring in your hands. And with 30% in fuel savings, you'll save on every load. That's money in your pocket. Visit aggrowth.com slash Nico for more info. That's aggrowth.com slash Nico. Have you ever wondered how animals foraging for food know what to eat and what not to eat? Researchers who study animal behavior have discovered that mammals start learning how to eat even before they are born, based upon what their mothers are eating. What's more, the same breed and type of cow will forage differently based on the local environment and what the cow's body is telling her she needs. Fred Provenza is a Utah-based retired animal behavioral scientist and author who spent much of his career studying the foraging behavior of livestock. He told producers attending the Manitoba Regenerative Agriculture Conference in Brandon recently that some of those same principles also apply to humans, except with humans, things are a little different. Glacier Farm Media's Laura Rance spoke to him about why this matters to farmers. Fred, you uh, talked to the group today uh, a a lot about (laughs) we are what we eat, Um, but you you spoke about how the choices that we make are driven by taste, but taste is driven by something far more powerful than just, you know, the the sensation that we get from eating it. What's at work there? If you think about when we're eating, what we're actually feeding, and I often ask people that, and I say, where does food go into the stomach, and then where does it go? It's really cells and organ systems in our body that are being fed. And so this whole idea of feedback, that that they have a voice, it's kind of like a democracy of all the organ systems, that they're able to, what I refer to as feedback, have feedback systems that alter our liking for the flavor of food as a function of what they need. It becomes a really functional system. And we don't need to get into the details of how that works, but... You know, through nerves, neurotransmitters, peptides, hormones, those are the signals that they're sending. And each of these organ systems has need. Nowadays, there's a lot being written about and talked about on the microbiome, that the microbiome is changing our liking for food. That's the idea. But now think we're more than just a microbiome. We have brain, liver, 
skin, all these different organ systems, each with needs. And that's where I use Claire Sylvia as an example. When she got heart and lungs from a, from a young man, her food preferences really broadened out to include foods she never liked before. They were foods that her donor loved. And those organ systems were changing her liking for those foods as a function of what they liked. So it lets you know that all this is happening at a at a non-cognitive, intuitive, synthetic kind of level. We don't have to think about it. All we have to know is what tastes good and what doesn't, and then let the body guide us from meal to meal and day to day, assuming that we have really wholesome foods, fruits, vegetables, meats, those kind of things. And we got got into quite a lot that, you know, the flavors of fruits and vegetables and meats have all declined as we've gotten away from growing them under really wholesome conditions of plant diversity and soil health and so forth. And at the same time, the food industry's learned how to make junk food just irresistible. So we've disincentivized real foods because they don't taste good. We've made junk food really desirable and it's hijacked that whole wisdom of the body system. So you're saying there is science behind the idea that a homegrown tomato tastes better than what we buy at the grocery store. You look at those uh, fruits and vegetables on the on the shelf in the market and they look great. But when you when you let the ultimate biochemist try them, they, they don't have any flavor at all. And so we can do, and there is a, a, a lot of research that's been done and a lot more that's coming out that broadens it beyond um, energy, protein, vitamins, and minerals and so forth to these other compounds that occur in plants that I was referring to as phytochemicals or secondary compounds, but this rich array of compounds. And uh, there's some nice research that's coming out to show that that total phytochemical richness has declined hugely in the past 50 years. And and then that, that links very nicely with what I was saying, that it doesn't taste any good. So, you know, people are developing, and I, I appreciate this work, d- developing little sensors that you could take into the store and try to see how, how rich it is. What, what really we should be able to do, and I know it's maybe not practical, but we should be allowed to taste the food. It's, you know, because your body knows. Huh? Your body your body tells you right off the bat if this is any good or not any good. And that's going back and kind of getting in touch with and recognizing something we forgot long ago forgotten, that there is a wisdom to the body. It has to be because there weren't nutritionists, pharmacists, biochemists, all the years we were evolving, we, 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 the body was was that, you know. You, you mentioned research that was done long, long ago with, with small children making choices. And, and what did that research find? Yeah, that was Clara Davis' work. And uh, what she found was that these young children, very, very young, given up for adoption shortly after birth, were able to self-select foods, and this was over six years. Six years of them, total self-selection, were able to select foods that absolutely met their needs. Pediatricians that were working with those children said they'd never seen a healthier set of children. She was offering them wholesome foods, 34 foods available seasonally in the market, and uh, 
Yeah, and they were, uh, I think, all the time of her, some of her conclusions. No two children ever selected the same combinations of foods. No child ever selected the same food from day to day. They were varying their diet. And uh, I think of that so much because uh, we did studies with cattle and with sheep where we'd offer them choices or feed them kind of formula food, total mixed ration and stuff. And we found the same things. And when we were writing our papers on that, we were using the same language she did, but we'd never read her work. When I read her work later, I thought, oh my gosh, it's like we plagiarized what she was saying. And it's because we were seeing exactly the same things in sheep and cattle that she was seeing in, in her children. I would have loved to have met her. Why does this matter to agriculture? Why does this matter to the choices that farmers in that room might be making with regards to their business and their farm management? No, clearly people have to be able to make a living. And I know from the years I was on the ranch, I remember Henry DeLuca, the person that I worked with, was like a father to my wife and I and his wife like a mother. He said, there's never been any money in agriculture, never has been, you know, and he he was born in, in 1900. So he'd been working at it his whole life. So people need to make money. But I think a key thing is to realize that, that what we're trying to do with any of this, and we have to be able to, to make money in it, but is to, to nourish, to nourish, to nourish the land, to nourish the people that are on the land, to nourish life below and above ground on the land. Um, as I said there, and to remember once again that we're, na we're members of nature's communities. We're, we've gotten in the technological world so much thinking, I think that we're, you know, we're, we're smarter, we're more clever, we're better. And I see this whole, you know, the, the whole fake meat and all that as just another, uh, another manifestation of that, huh? We're, we're, we're clever. We know how to do this stuff. Well, we need to be learning from nature. We're a member of nature's communities. What we do to them, ultimately we do to ourselves. And only by nurturing them are we going to be able to nurture ourselves. So I think that becomes a really important role that agriculture can play. And uh, people like here at this conference, they're, they're into that, right? They're understanding and appreciating. I'm not telling them anything that they don't really know and appreciate already, just kind of reinforcing some of that. And as we pointed out, you know, if anything that, and this is from fossil fuel industry to think tank groups, to groups that follow this closely, they're saying oil and natural gas by mid-century, that's pretty much it. And it's going to be pretty much it way before that, right? As fossil fuel prices soar, I don't expect them to go down. I mean, a lot of political pressure in the U.S. and, you know, all that right. business. But we're going to need to, to really become ecological rather than egological in our thinking. So you don't buy into the suggestion that meat is inherently bad for the environment, particularly beef. I mean, there's certainly a campaign to convince everyone to go and move more towards plant-based proteins. Mm. Uh, you don't see um, uh, that as being a solution. Not at all. Not at all. I really don't. I think, uh, you know, a lot of the plant-based approaches are, ba are 
based on industrial kinds of ag agriculture as well, which, you know, the heavy dependence on fossil fuels for all of that, the tillage, on and on and on. So, no. And, you know, when I went to school years ago and to grad school, what really attracted me was the idea that domestic animals can be used to, to improve the health of landscapes. I mean, grazing isn't grazing isn't grazing. It's how it's done. And uh, herbivores have been a part of natural systems for forever. You know, they're, they're a natural part of those systems. So, again, this idea of trying to understand natural systems, plants and animals and their interactions with one another and appreciate that. And, you know, when it comes to, to methane, too, um, I think a really important distinction. So a lot of times people yeah. talk about cattle as, you know, burping up all the methane. It's really a problem. But if you think about where that methane is being generated, how that's working, it's part of the carbon cycle. Plants are fixing carbon dioxide through photosynthesis. That's carbon dioxide that's in the system. They're fixing that through photosynthesis. The ruminant animals, and that includes wild ones as well as the domesticated ones, they eat the plants, and then some of the the, the microbes in the gut <clears throat> produce methane as a part of that. The amount they produce really depends on what combination and the quality of the diet too. That can be be decreased. And as I said today too, you know there there are nutrients in meat that are really abundant in meat that you can't get from plants, and there are nutrients in plants that are more abundant than in meat. So we're omnivores and a combination of those. And then going back to this idea, how are they being grown? What What's it doing for the system? Plant diversity, generating life below ground and above ground becomes, I think, fundamental to that. So no, I I, I just am not a fan of that. I think it's, 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 it's really vitally important to understand natural processes and and the roles that plants and animals have played for millennia in those and then to try to use nature as a model as many folks are nowadays thinking about um, how nature works can we try to understand some about that and try to to get back into ecological as opposed to egological ways of thinking about all that thank you very much yeah you're welcome That was Laura Rant speaking with Fred Provenza. This week I spent two days at the Manitoba Association of Watersheds Conference in Winnipeg. Hundreds of farmers, rural people and conservation specialists filled a big hall for in-depth sessions on many of the issues of doing environmental preservation at the local level. In recent years, both the federal and provincial governments seem to have realized the competence and abilities of watershed districts to implement environmental protection and improvement and have been using watershed organizations to achieve their environmental goals. I had a chance to talk to Manitoba Association of Watersheds President Gary Wazalowski, who is also a cattle producer. We heard a number of times this morning uh, from the minister uh, and from the speaker just now that uh, things like watershed districts have uh, an important role to play with, um, I guess, ground level 
uh, application of uh, environmental principles and in, in protecting the landscapes we farm and, and live in. Um, you know, there were times when I think conservation districts and watershed uh, organizations weren't as, as high profile. Um, how are you finding that trans- transition to taking a more leading role in a lot of these programs? I think the watershed districts have always been there. We've got more dollars to work with right now. Uh, I think that uh, certainly government and other people are noticing the work that we do. Uh, we we are the people that, uh, I always say, we're the boots on the ground. We're, 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 we're there. We, we know the landscape. Uh, we, we get stuff done on the ground. You've got the governments coming up with principles and and we get out on the ground and actually do the work and and, and I think uh, after a number of years we're starting to see that people are recognizing the work that we do uh, some of the new programs certainly with uh, where the federal government has gone we, we've we getting we're getting more profile because there's more money to spend and more people are realizing what we do and do you feel like the people involved with watershed districts, uh, are, you know, are up to uh, taking on this this newfound, I guess, uh, demand uh, or or need for them to be able to deliver um, these these programs? And Without ideas? a doubt, and I think that that's a th- another thing that's happened over the last number of years is is that. Uh, Federal and provincial governments have seen that we are able to to do these programmings for them, and, and that we are the people that are capable of doing it. And I think that's something that, as an organization, we've we've moved forward with too, showing that and proving that we can do these jobs. And there's uh, there's hundreds of people here. This is a big meeting. Uh, it's twenty below zero. Uh, and not very nice driving conditions with all this new snow. Uh, were you surprised to be able to get so many people from you know, across the province in some tough conditions to come here? That's another thing about our program. The people that are here are very dedicated, very dedicated. They, they understand what's going on. They want to do a good job, and, and they want to hear what other areas are doing and, and other watershed districts are doing. So they, they're committed to this project and they're committed to doing what's going to make this a better province. Farmers play the most important part in preserving the rural environment of farming areas because they live and work on the land. They operate farms, they steward the soil, and they live within watersheds. I had a chance to speak about that with Ananda Fitzsimmons of Regeneration Canada. If you just think about the scale of landscape level change, you know, if you've got a little postage stamp and you improve, you know, water holding and soil carbon on a small little area, it's going to be beneficial. But the bigger area you do, the more beneficial it is. The more carbon is is stored, the more water is stored and cycled and cleaned and all those things. So the bigger area is better. Um, a watershed is a big area and sometimes it's hard to make those changes because watersheds cross borders and the jurisdictions in the different borders don't talk to each other so 
any way that we have to to coordinate in a bioregion, the greater impact you're going to have. And, you know, there's lots of individual regenerative ag farmers I've met, and I, I've been to the farms, uh, and there's obviously big watershed districts. Uh, are there sort of regional or district um, regenerative ag uh, organizations or approaches that are working like a watershed district or amongst the individual regenerative ag farmers? There are, there are agriculture groups that that promote regenerative agriculture and help farmers to, you know, get started. Um, but I think the more it's coordinated across, you know, to make it easier for more people and, and in any one region, the more, the more change that, you know, that is implemented, the bigger the impact is going to be. You know, I mean, if you think about it on a planetary level, you think about, you know, how do we change this situation with, you know, the carbon being in the atmosphere? I mean, obviously, you know, the more people that get it out, the better, right? The more people that, you know, preserve the water and the water tables, you know, the better. So, you know, the more it's fragmented, the, the less quickly it's going to, you know, be implemented. And you made the point of that the climate crisis won't really be solved until um, nature is restored. Uh, and you talk quite a bit about livestock as sort of a part of that or, of, you know, grazing animals, at least, as, as part of that. Uh, other people raise that uh, as well. Lots of people in this room would, would have cattle. But these days when you think climate crisis and, you know, uh, grazing animals, especially cattle, uh, you hear a lot of uh, anti-animal, uh, yeah. anti-livestock, anti-grazing yeah. sentiment. Um, how do you address that? Because uh, you're, you're dealing with both. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's a, an expression in regenerative agriculture. It's not the cow, it's the how. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Uh, yeah, you know, I heard it the other day, actually, for the first yeah. time, so I thought it was yeah. kind of clever. Yeah. So, so I don't think the problem isn't the cows. The problem is how the cows are managed. So, you know, the approach of feedlots and, you know, in so many parts of the world, desertification was largely because of badly managed grazing. You know, in the, in, um, where is it? In the, in this, in the Sinai Desert. The Bedouins used to used to have like herds of, of animals that they moved around, and they were nomadic. So they were basically doing managed grazing. And the government decided to not let them do that anymore. Keep them all in the same spot. It became a desert within a generation because they overgrazed it. So you know, if grazing animals aren't properly managed to move like they used to in wild ecosystem, like the buffalo used to move across the landscape, they didn't, you know, eat the grass to the roots in one spot. So the way we manage grazing is really important. Um, and you know, having all these animals together on a feedlot is is not the same as uh, managing them feeding grass. That being said, uh, you know. Maybe we don't have enough area on the planet for everybody to eat meat as often as North Americans eat meat. Um, so maybe we need to eat less meat, but we can't take away the animals because they're such a critical part of, of, the, of the ecosystem. And, you know, 
there were natural ecosystems that you know, involved, like I mentioned. Yeah. There were grazing animals on the land, and those grazing animals had a really important ecological function. They still do. And when you're looking at rebuilding soil, like, you know, just measuring impact on a regenerative farm, the ones that manage, have some managed grazing, you know, their, their soil organic matter goes up faster than ways than without animals. So, yeah, you know, both things are true. Um, perhaps not everybody in the world can aspire to eat meat three times a day, but it doesn't hurt to, you know, diversify our diet. But we do need grazing animals. Some farmers commit a lot of time and effort to preserving the environment their cattle rely upon. They try to improve the land and water over time. They want to leave it better than they found it. But do people outside rural areas and halls like this understand that? I spoke with cattle producer Ryan Kennard about that. I don't know how you make people stop and think about their decisions, but yeah, I, I don't know how to communicate that message more clearly than just people need to take an interest in actually like the real think through their decisions. Like it's quite, quite easy to be like, Oh, cattle are bad. I've heard cattle are bad. They fart, they make methane or whatever. That's, that's one quick thought. But when you consider the life cycle, the whole life cycle, cattle need grasslands, grasslands are good for the watershed infiltration, habitat, biodiversity. Um, so I don't, I don't know how to, to, to get that message across to the urban the urban majority uh, I don't know and and you on your your own operation you you've quite fundamentally changed how you manage it over the last couple of decades can, can you talk a little bit about that well again like I came out of university thinking I want to I want to do a practice that um, maximizes the productivity and health of the ecosystem and therefore I grad gravitated towards high intensity uh, grazing, short duration grazing. Um, it's almost like a muscle, right? Like you, you utilize grass, you let it rest. It's almost like going to the gym and, and, and using your muscles and then letting them rest. So I think over time that's grown the health or the strength of the grass, therefore the soil, therefore the watershed resilience. I, I, I don't know. I want to almost go back to that first question you asked people need to be told over and over and over again that livestock agriculture a large portion of livestock agriculture is really good for the environment we sat and had supper last night with a vegan and i just like do you realize the footprint of a, of a vegan diet as well like it's it's just as bad or if not worse than having animal agriculture harmonizing with the environment and the biology and all the biodiversity that goes along with uh, living organisms on the landscape. Um, you grow soybeans and there's there's really not much biodiversity or other living things other than a soybean plant. And the aftermath of a soybean field, there, there's just no habitat left, right? So you have those guys come to me to ask if they can hunt deer in the fall because all their land is cleared and devoid of <laughs> habitat, right? 
So, and you know, forests get a lot of love. Rivers get a lot of love. Uh, uh, there's there's all sorts of types of natural environments that seem to get appreciated for their role in the environment. Uh, a point another producer brought up yesterday was the grasslands don't seem to get recognized as much as um, an essential part of uh, creating a, a sustainable environment. Uh, having living, thriving grasslands. Uh, is that something you feel as well? Yeah, I would think, um, I haven't grown up out west. Like, grasslands aren't as sexy as mountains and forests and, and all that, rivers and stuff like that, but they do definitely play a vital role. They exist in their ecosystem in the in the Great Canadian Plains, and they need to be supported and expressed. I've heard that there's, like, less than 1% of the tall grass prairie left in in the in Manitoba or whatever, but short grass prairie, tall grass prairie. I mean, if you're a real nature lover, you're going to see beauty in those ecosystems regardless. But I think there's so much of it has been lost that we maybe have kind of overlooked the, the the power, the beauty, the importance of, of grassland environments. And have you seen your own land change over, over the years where you've run rotational definitely, grazing? Definitely. We, we took over some of our farmland from an old fellow that um, I used to go and have coffee with before he passed. He was in World War II, so he'd been on that farm for a long time and did poor management by today's standards. Um, probably continuously grazed places and uh so i've i've changed the management on that grass uh land environment and and definitely um even showed a slide yesterday there were i've got some some of the native grass species are starting to come back because of the the management practice or the the, the grazing protocol that i'm using so i mean the that that can help happen and and i'm going through school knowing about riparian areas they're way more resilient they'll bounce back quicker but the upland more arid environments of grasslands will also come back if you apply the right management to them for sure and uh, what kind of an operation do you have uh what, what do you run uh just a yearling operation so i have cattle on the farm from may till september um i i started out with about I started out, we started out, me and my brother started out with about, I, we could feed two animals per acre per, per summer. And it slowly dropped off as the grasses have kind of gotten older. So those stands are now 20 years old. I can still take people out to the, the original, like 20-year-old pastures, and they don't believe that it's a 20-year-old stand. Hmm. So it's, it's still quite healthy and vigorous. And again, that's because we graze it once or twice and then let it rest the rest of the year producers that hay hay fields then graze them right after that you know they last five years six years seven years and then they start to think they need to rejuvenate them rip them up reseed them or something like that but if you apply the right management to grasslands they're only going to get stronger and stronger over over time that's how i feel anyways yeah 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 so it's a yearling background grassing operation yeah yeah so that's quite a challenging thing to to do it's busy for a hundred days of the year. I'm looking forward to it in May. And by the time September rolls around, I'm ready to pull my hair out and sell the farm. You know, it's <laughs> just where it wears on you. Yeah. Especially if you have wrecks. Yeah. You know. And where are you located? So I'm uh, just outside Elkhorn, Manitoba, halfway kind of between Elkhorn and Verdon, Manitoba, right on the, more or less right on the Trans-Canada Highway. Yeah. Get near Saskatchewan. So. Yeah. I'm about 10 miles from Saskatchewan. Yeah. 
For stories from this conference, go to upcoming issues of the Western Producer and the Manitoba Cooperator. We were both there. That's all for this week. Please join us again next week for another edition of Between the Rows. I'm Ed White, and I wish you all the best in this holiday season. Save money, make money with AGI Nico Dryers. AGI Nico Mixed Flow Screenless Dryers provide one to two pounds heavier test weight per bushel and require less maintenance than screen dryers. Stainless steel fuel trains mean no rust or corrosion to worry about. AGI Nico Dryer Manager puts remote management and monitoring in your hands. And with 30% in fuel savings, you'll save on every load. That's money in your pocket. Visit aggrowth.com slash Nico for more info. That's aggrowth.com slash Nico.